Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we feature a special conversation between award-winning journalist and biographer Pamela Newkirk and celebrated author and scholar Jennifer Homans. In May of this year, Homans took home BIO's top honor, the 2023 Plutarch Award, BIO's recognition of the year's best biography. Homans' book, Mr. B, Balanchine's 20th Century, was published by Random House in November 2022. This live conversation was sponsored by and recorded in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York on November 29th, 2022. We present an edited version of this live event today with the Levy Center's permission. My name is Kai Bird and I'm the director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography a wholly unique institution hosted by the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and founded by Shelby White and the Leon Levy Foundation in the year 2007. I want to thank Shelby for her steadfast support to the Biography Center. It is her vision that makes this program possible. I also want to thank Karen Sander and her team at the Graduate Center's Office of Public Programs for co-sponsoring this event. Tonight, I am delighted to introduce Jennifer Homans, who will be in conversation with Pamela Newkirk. They will be discussing Homans' biography, Mr. B, George Balanchine's 20th Century. Jennifer Homans is the dance critic for The New Yorker. In 2018-2019, she was a Leon Levy fellow working on Mr. B. In 2010, she published Apollo's Angels, A History of Ballet. Trained in dance at Balanchine's School of American Ballet, she went on to perform professionally with the Chicago Lyric Opera Ballet and the Pacific Northwest Ballet. She later earned her PhD in Modern European History at New York University, where she is a distinguished scholar and founding director of the Center for Ballet and the Arts. Pamela Newkirk is a journalist, professor, and multidisciplinary scholar whose work includes history and journalism. Her previous book, Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Oda Benga, was completed while she was a Leon Levy biography fellow. The book was selected as the best book of 2015 by NPR, the Boston Globe, and the San Francisco Chronicle, an editor's choice by the New York Times, and it won the NAACP Image Award and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Again, thanks to the Leon Levy Foundation for funding this and all our other events. On that note, I now turn the evening over to Pamela Newkirk. Thank you. Thank you, Kai. It's wonderful to be back here, um, not only after the pandemic, but after my book signing here when Spectacle was published. And it's a thrill to be here with Jennifer Homans tonight. 
So as a former dancer who also studied at SAB and who studied with Suzette Farrell, you took a class with Balanchine and you danced professionally with his third wife, uh, you performed his works. So you were perfectly poised to set out for this challenge, but there had been other biographies. So when did you decide to do this and how did you go about it? So I decided to do it soon after Apollo's Angels was published. So it was in about 2012, I think. And as you say, there are other biographies, but most of them were written either when he was alive, in the case of the Tabor biography, or soon after his death. And it felt like it had been a, a long time at this point. You know, he died in 1983, and here I was in 2012. And there were archival resources, but there were also still living people. It seemed that there was space for a sort of full-scale biography that considered both the man and the work that he had done and the history that he had lived in. So, I mean, that was my sort of intellectual reason. I think I also had personal reasons, which were had to do with, as you said, I, I danced many of his works, and I had tried for years to sort of put him behind and put dance behind and just say, okay, well, that was one life, and now I'm a historian, and I'm going to live a different life. And okay, I'd gone back and done Apollo's Angels, but I just wasn't sure that I wanted to do another dance, but I couldn't, the experience had been so powerful that I couldn't really leave it. So I decided I'd better just go plunge in. And lucky for us, you did. So let's talk about the research. It's so meticulously researched. And I believe you spent 10 years working on this. I did. Right. Um, tell us about the research. Where did you go? What, what, what did you find that others hadn't found before? I mean, I started by thinking, oh, I'm going to do mostly archival research. And then I started doing a few interviews and talking, especially to the women that had danced with him who were still living, and there are many, because they were so young when they began. And as I started talking to them, I sort of shifted my strategy. And I start, figured, well, the archives are always going to be there. These people may not. So I made a long list of people, starting with the oldest people. And I just started to make my way through it. And I, um, as I talked to people, I realized that I was really interested not just in you know, what they had to say about Balanchine, but who they were. They were the most interesting, eccentric group of people, and so um, fascinating. And so I ended up you know, spending hours with each one and uh, talking about their whole lives. You and interviewed about 200 dancers, I right? did, and I, and I went back to several of them, many of them, more than once. And so it became a kind of immersion in their stories and in their, as I came to see it, their testimony about what had happened. Then I did do also archival research, both in New York, also in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the Balanchine papers are held at uh, Harvard. 
also, you know, in different archives and small collections all over the country, sometimes in attics and basements, you know, you know my this, favorite, you know favorite. this, you know. <laughs> and then across Europe, and I did quite a lot of research in Russia as well with the help of a um, very gifted historian and research assistant who helped me by going into the archives for me. And he was so deeply private. So how was it when you first uh, started approaching these dancers? Were people immediately open to you prying? <laughs> no, no. And this was, the, the, the in, in a way, the biggest challenge, both in terms of people and in terms of archives, because Balanchine sort of destroyed his past as he went. He didn't really care about the past. He was the opposite of a pack rat. He, he just... Even when Lincoln Kirstein met him in 1933, and he was born in 1904, and he had been through a lot by then, he said he doesn't have a single clipping of his ballets. He's just not interested and in the past. And he basically erased his past, he right? Erased he erased it, He always totally. said he was from Georgia, but where was he really from? He was from St. Petersburg. Right. And, you know, he... There was a whole sort of mythology that got built up that was partly made, partly probably just something he kind of believed, and, but that was also based on the, uh, the whole idea that dance is now. And he really didn't, even though the past became a very deep resource for him, it wasn't something that he kept around him in yeah. objects. And, and I want to get to that because his work was, in a sense, really autobiographical, wasn't it? You know, like he it's really, such a balance, right? He really minds his life, right? Yeah, he, d he does mind his life, so right. I mean, he, he just, um, I mean, I thought of him finally as somebody who was watching all the time, yeah. just like the watcher. He was quite quiet, quite reserved, and he was certainly able to talk up a storm and was charming, very charming. But he was naturally reserved and... and looking and yeah. seeing and you know as you say I mean he you know he was born in Imperial Russia so he experienced and absorbed that as a child he lived through the revolution absorbed the horror of that which for him it was a horror because he was starving and ill and cold and it was difficult and alone not, not just starving but like eating rats yeah, right completely and I mean people really starving horses and whatever they could find, right? Yeah, I mean, the story of the revolution is difficult, especially if you're a child. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, so much trauma, but magisterial, thrilling, sensitive, definitive. These are just some of the words that were used to describe what emerged from your research, uh, this amazing book. And you render this richly drawn portrait of him, that he's like a homebody, right? Um, kind of simple in some ways. Yeah, right? Isn't that amazing? You right. Know? And you describe him as workmanlike, and you show the many ways that he was workmanlike. Uh, he was a craftsman, but he comes alive through his work and through his music. Um, he played the piano. He was an accomplished pianist. And the two combined were really his passions, right? Music and dance. Completely. I mean, these were, this was the base. The music was the base, the floor, as he put it, the floor that we all move on. Yeah. So you touched on what he lived through in Russia, but let's talk about his childhood, um, who his parents were, and who this little Georgie 
Balanchivats, is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah, Balanchivadza, yeah. He was, I mean, he um, was born in St. Petersburg to a Georgian father and a Russian mother. We know quite a lot about the father because he became a, a well-known musician who was very taken up with the kind of nationalist movement in Georgia in the last part of the 19th century and and was very keen on developing a specifically Georgian culture as opposed to a Russian culture. And so that's what Balanchine absorbed. I think that's what made him feel Georgian because even though he had never been to Georgia until he went back in the 60s. Which is amazing, right? Which is amazing, you know. He knew a lot about it because his he, the father had the, the music all the time. He was trained in music at home a bit, you know, on the piano with his mother, and they heard concerts all the time, and he did little shows with his brother and sister, and the Georgian food, and so he, he had some of that. Um, but the childhood is an amazing story in itself. It's a book in itself, his childhood. It right? is, and, and there is a book about it in itself, <laughs> so, which I drew on, yeah. but it's a, um, just to begin with, you know, the year before he's born, his parents, who are not wealthy people at all. And they're not married. Right? And they're not married. <laughs> this is a bit of a problem. Um, they win the lottery. Or she probably she, does. She, she does. Lottery, right? She wins the lottery. And um, you know, <laughs> this is all something back. that Elizabeth Kendall uncovered <laughs> in her book. And suddenly they're rich. And she has the money. So she's the one. You know, this is an, a story of strong women, really, in this whole book. You know, there's just strong women everywhere, including the dancers, including his, his mother, who was fragile and frail, but also carried an enormous amount. I mean, the, the lottery money was you know, spent in crazy business ventures by his father, and his mother really just held it down. Held the house. But he had another no. family, right? The father had another family, other children who nobody really knew about for a long time. Um, Balanchine kind of knew about them. So there was a whole sort of confused scenario there, what I call sort of, you know, it, it was like built on sand, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. you know? And the parents do get married, but we don't know that they actually did get married, but the papers are there because they needed the papers. It looks like the it's, papers came after the fact, right? Like, yeah, completely. And we're probably kind of doctored. Manute doctored, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Probably paid for. Which may account for why he was so private. Do you think there may have been some shame associated with... You know, that's um, an interesting question. The shame part, I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but I, I think you're certainly on their part, probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, you know, children absorb those things, as we know, right, as parents ourselves. He was certainly, it's part of his recessed quality, I think. Mm -hmm. He was very, his father was very outgoing, incredibly charming, always, you know, the life of the party. A bon vivant. You a say. bon vivant. And he was really, as you said, you know, a worker and a craftsman and a watcher. He was always watching and absorbing whatever he could take. Now, it was his sister who his mother thought would be the dancer, right? When she takes them to the Imperial Theater. Exactly. It's such a classic story, right? It's, it's amazing. A... So, so tell us, so he's eight or nine mm -hmm. when, when she takes them to the Imperial Theater, and then what happens? You know, they see, oh, a boy. <laughs> and so the sister doesn't get in, but he's immediately pulled into an audition 
And that very day, they admit him, and his mother leaves him. And he said, like a dog. And he said, and this I found on a tape wow. that he did with a previous biographer. So it's in his words where he says, you know, even those many years later in the 60s when he's giving this interview, he says, they left me like a dog. He was bitter about it. Yeah. Even though it led to his future good life, you know? Right. But there was that sadness, I'm sure, and trauma. The right? sadness of... Eight, nine years old, and they just leave him. They and, leave him. And he, that's where he kind of grows up. That's right. where he grows up. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't seem that he ever forgave his mother, but his father, he kept his picture by his bedside. Why, why do you think that is? I think he admired his father. He wanted his father's um, approval. You know, his father was a musician, and that's what he, he wanted to be. And his younger brother became a musician, also And accomplished as well, right? Accomplished I mean, not musician yeah. in, in Georgia. And I think he wanted to be, rec you know, a sibling rivalry thing, wanted to be recognized as, as a musician. And so I think his father meant a lot to him. He was Georgian, he was a musician, he was accomplished. That, that was a lot. I mean, I think he was very fond of his mother, but he saw her as something soft and distant. Right, so he starts making ballets. He was really young. He was very young, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing because he grew up in that imperial theater school long enough before the revolution, because he's, he's barely a teenager when the revolution comes. But he absorbs this, this sort of petit pas legacy, the legacy of the imperial ballet, of these big story ballets, Swan Lake, the Sleeping Beauty, all the things we know as Russian ballet. He's got all that. And then when the revolution comes, he kind of he's never that taken with it. He's kind of ready to move on. He wants to make ballet progressive, as he puts it. And he's working with these radical artists on the, on the avant-garde of the revolutionary scene. And so, you know, once he's grown up enough past the starvation and the difficulties of the early years of the war and revolution, we shouldn't forget there's a war there too and a civil war, brutal. So as he's becoming a, a later teenager, he really starts working in these venues that are outside of the Imperial Theater, even though he's got a job as a dancer there. So there's this tension already developing between the classical and the something very avant-garde. And he's, still, he's studying music as well, right? He's studying and he, piano. then he, he gave himself a good musical education. He basically mm -hmm. went over to the conservatory across the street and enrolled himself. You said he read scores like others read novels. Yeah. Um, music was just so foundational for him, and he was really tied to, like, the music of Tchaikovsky, but he was really, really enamored with Stravinsky. Yeah. Why, what was that based on, that kind of... I mean, um, I think that's a, you know, it's, it's the Russian but new. Here was somebody who was remaking music, mm -hmm. you know, sort of Russian and Western combined style that also had influences from jazz and, and um, all kinds, you know, as far from Russia to, to America. And this was the world that interested him and that he became a part of. So he was admiring of Stravinsky from the very beginning, even before he met him in Paris right, later. Because so Stravinsky had by then already left Russia. He did not live through the revolution in Russia. Right. So they were different generations. And he was already famous, right? And he by was the already time. famous. And he became a kind of father figure, right. I think. You know, yeah. somebody who really, he, 
people told me over and over again, there was no one Balanchine admired as much as Stravinsky. He would be, he was in awe. Yeah, you said he saw him as a god, um, I'm quoting you, he bowed, doted, and acquiesced. Yeah. And that's not something that seemed... Uh... <laughs> he didn't acquiesce to many other people. <laughs> right. you know, he thought he knew, and he did most of the time, about his own work. Yeah. But with Stravinsky and the times they worked together, he would listen and change things. Yeah, I mean, Stravinsky weighed in on his choreography, right? Stravinsky weighed in on the choreography. <laughs> yeah, and they would argue, you but know? In Russian. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, so he leaves Russia at age 20. Talk a little bit about the circumstances of him leaving and what happened. You know, his early life is so packed. It's hard yes. to even... Oh my it's God, like so much. It's so much. I mean, by then like he's, by the time he's, he's already 20, married. He's accomplished, right? He's accomplished. <laughs> so. He's known. He's started a small company in Russia called the Young Ballet, which is doing very radical work. Not at all in a classical idiom. Much more acrobatic, twisted, contorted, um, almost nude in costume, you know, but this is all stuff that's going on on the Russian scene at the time, or the emerging Soviet scene. And he gets married to a young, a young woman, a dancer also, who's working with him, the first of his <laughs> five <laughs> marriages, all to dancers that he worked with and, it, and was inspired by. So, you know, by the time he leaves, I think he's seeing, this is Lenin is coming to power, and he's seeing that, you know, things are pretty difficult. Yeah. It's not just the food and, you know, we're in the NEP period, the new economic policy, where there's, there's a bit more movement in the economy, so it's, they're playing, uh, you know, bars and night venues and things like that. But they're barely getting by, and there's a sense of foreboding, and uh, one of their close colleagues disappears and is found drowned. And this is a, you know, there's a sort of growing suspicion. They all thought she was drowned. It killed was never proved, state, but right? killed by the state. Mm -hmm. There was a sense that this is not a good situation. And so they find a way to <laughs> go to Europe. That's an understatement. That's an understatement, <laughs> right. There's a way to get to Europe for the summer. And they sign on. You know, we don't really know whether they ever thought they would come back, but um, this contract is an interesting thing because it keeps being remade. You know, there's a small group of them who go, and they keep remaking the contract. You know, we must stick together. We must stay together. And none of them return. So they're stateless. Right. They arrive in Germany, and they go from being well-known performers with at least that kind of recognition and stability, right. to being completely stateless in exile and with no money. So they're bouncing nothing between to do. Berlin and Paris. And yeah, and then finally Balanchine gets a job with Diaghilev, who had already been there. I mean, the Diaghilev era has already had a whole chapter. And so Balanchine sort of walks into it in the 20s, and it had started in the early 1909, 1910. Mm -hmm. Can't remember when Diaghilev exactly arrived, but so he's walking into a, a situation that's quite well established, but right. in great need of talent and Russian talent, choreographic talent. And he starts working with, you know, the the European avant-garde. He's working with Matisse and and Picasso and Dali and, and Dali and and 
you know, Ravel and Wardrobes Stravinsky. Wardrobes by Coco and, Chanel. Yeah, Coco <laughs> Chanel. I mean, this is just, he's, he's in Paris in the 20s, and he's watching absorbing. and absorbing yeah. and doing and making dances at a fast rate. So he was 24 when in 1928 he yeah. does, um, is it Apollo Musagit? Yeah, Apollo Musagit, yeah. With, with Stravinsky. And it, it sounds like that's when you really start to see his vision for dance. Um, you write, um, in Stravinsky's pristine score, Balanchine found his own blank slate. And what was so unusual about Apollo Musagit? I mean, I think what was going on was that he had been trying out a lot of stuff. You know, he had been in the revolutionary, and he's trying out everything he's seeing there. He's trying out the, what he got from Imperial Dance. He's in Europe. He's working with Surrealists. He's trying that out. He's working with anybody that came his way with popular culture. He's trying that out. He's in musical theater. He's trying that out. He's seeing everything that's going on in Weimar Germany and all the cabaret acts. He's trying that out. And then, you know, by the time he gets this score from Stravinsky, which they did not actually work on together, the ballet was first performed elsewhere, but he gets this score, and it's Stravinsky who is moving away from things like the Rite of Spring and these sort of Ur-Russian dances into something more um, pure, Bach-like, more Western-oriented in a way, but still with a Russian heart, as it were, and, and it's a very spare score, and I think that really kind of jolted him, mm-hmm. and he returned to sort of basic principles, and he has said this himself, it taught me to eliminate, which, you know, is a kind of way of renouncing. Yeah, and he's kind of influenced also by Bauhaus, right? That was He's influenced really by good. Bauhaus, too. He takes that in, yeah. you know, and there is that Bauhaus, yeah, you're right, you know, the line, the mm-hmm. structure. The... So it's not that he's turning away from everything, but right. he's trying, he's looking for something pure and linear. Yeah, and he's curating as he goes, right? He's taking what he can use. He's taking what seems to fit with this What he likes, as he always says. What I like. Don't you love that? I love that. What I like, and the certainty of knowing what I like is what we all came to like, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, that he's going to show us why we should like it. So um, flash forward between the mid-30s and the mid-40s, he's now working on Broadway and in Hollywood. Um, what a turn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think of the worlds that this man has been through already, right? Right. Um, extraordinary. So he has the house in Beverly Hills, he has <laughs> the beautiful wife, he has all of these material things, but he doesn't sound that happy during those years. No, those were on? very difficult years. I mean, he had a, uh, he, he married a Vera Zorina, a Hollywood star, and Broadway star and... Well, he helped make her a star. He helped make her a star, <laughs> yes. for sure. And it was a very, very difficult and unhappy marriage. And because this, she didn't love him, right? She really didn't love him. In fact, she loved um, one of his main competitors, Massine. Massine. Yeah, so... Who was a real rival, right? A genuine rival. Yeah. And, I, you know, one of the very few genuine rivals that Valentin has. So why he chose a woman who was in love with his genuine rival is a question we might ask. But the letters that I found are, you know, are... He writes to her, and she saved these letters. 
and they're just, you know, heartbreaking. heartbreaking, passionate letters that I try to quote at length because they are in his voice and they are written in his, his very new English that's very faulted and misspelled and mis. I love mis it. It's, it, and it's, <laughs> it's so expressive, right? It's so expressive. It is, yeah. And he loves her so much, and she just won't, you know, she just won't. And so... She didn't love him, it She really like didn't it. love him, I don't think, yeah. you know, not... And or it's the beginning of what he called, they love me for my dances. Aww. She wanted to dance, and she wanted to dance his ballets. But she he wasn't, wanted her as a woman. And she wasn't a great dancer. And she wasn't like. a great dancer. <laughs> so he gave her a lot, but he, he also then turned it on her when she was not... You know, when the things got difficult, you know, he would say, I know what it is, the eternal dances, the you, eternal dances. You don't have it. You don't have it. You're a spectacle dancer. You're, right. You dance spectacle. This is the eternal dance. Yeah. Um, so now in 1941, he does uh, Concerto Barocco. Mm -hmm. And you say that it was heavily influenced by black American dance and musical forms and that it's his most eternal work. Why? So it's uh, eternal in the sense that he used it. I mean, he was really devoted to Bach, and he didn't use his music very much, which is a little surprising, you know, choreographically. But he did use it then, and Concerto Broco is just, you know, for anybody who's seen it, it's, a, it's almost a, um, I mean, it has an almost religious feel to it at times and it's and yet it's also full of these you know jazzy movements and the way that you know the hips are thrusting and the and the syncopation and he's he's playing off of Bach with an almost jazz age and you know this was a moment when people were trying to sort of what they called swing classical music you know working on jazz forms and that's that was something that interested him deeply the first place that I saw it really being absorbed and shown, and there have been musicologists who've worked on this who, who really take it apart and can show you where he's borrowing, uh, borrowing and, and um, playing the way jazz musicians do. Mm -hmm. And he worked with Josephine Baker, of all people. He was, and I love the way he met her. Tell yeah, us about that. Yeah, he <laughs> met her actually in Paris. Right. He met her in Paris. He did work with her in New York a little bit. Um, and he was a great admirer of hers. He thought she was extraordinary, and she was extraordinary. Was so extraordinary, yeah. She was extraordinary, and she was doing you know, new and interesting things, even when her work was also very exoticized and uh, very daring. And he tells this story, one of the stories that he loves to tell, you know, where he, he, she invites him to lunch, and he goes out to meet her and, at her home. And uh, she appears at the door dressed in... Nothing, <laughs> and covered in flour. <laughs> so she's, she. So many others have told that story. So it must be just how she so greeted many. people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think she had. She was all. She was. She was a theatrical creature, and he loved that. But, you and know, she had that body. Maybe if I, I had that body, yeah, I don't know. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he was interested. You know, sort of everybody from Joseph Baker to the Nicholas Brothers to. Yeah. Uh, tap, jazz. Tap, jazz. He, he was yeah. in Harlem a lot, you know, sort of slumming and watching whatever he could and seeing whatever he could. 
Yeah, um, you write, he immediately began to incorporate moves, styles, techniques, syncopation, and other rhythmic patterns drawn from black dancers into the DNA, the inner physical and musical structures of his own ballets, balletic art. So he, like, made no secret that this is something that he really appreciated, right? Absolutely. And he worked with Catherine Dunham, who, who was a... Yeah, I was surprised you know, that, I mean, she had such an impact on dance, but I had no idea that he drew so much from her work. Yeah, he admired her enormously. And he even sent dancers down to her studio, sometimes like, go study with her. Wow, but then you also reveal, and maybe it had been said before, that he posed in these photographs in blackface. How do you reconcile his admiration for these black artists with what was considered, at least to blacks at that time, a mockery, but it was very common as well, right? Right. I mean, reconcile. I'm not sure I know how to reconcile it. <laughs> right. You know, he was certainly, uh, you know, in the 20s and even in London, he was, he was working in blackface, and there are images of him in blackface and of Danilova, one of his common-law wife and a dancer he worked with a lot um, in blackface. I mean... <laughs> It's just what was done, right? It, 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 yeah, it's not really, I mean, I think it's just what it's done, but in a way it's sort of not adequate, right? I mean, I right. really kind of tried to think, I wonder what you think about it, but I came to the idea that he, and he said this as well, I mean, I think he was kind of single-minded in a way. I mean, he was a theater man, and for him it was a theatrical tool mm -hmm. and a trope he was interested in. He saw it, he was like, wow, what's that, you know? just like trying everything else. He's mm -hmm. trying it on. And uh, he did work with black dancers occasionally in his company, but very occasionally. Oh, yeah. It's a white company. and Notably Arthur. Arthur Mitchell, Mitchell right. most notably. Yeah. Um, and there were a couple of others, and especially later Mel Tomlinson and uh, Debbie Austin. But, um, I mean, that's a sort of longer story, but the idea of sort of reconciling that he would take on these forms, but also be somebody who was at the forefront, you know, casting Arthur Mitchell in dances when it was hard to cross these color lines. Right, yeah. And working with Josephine Baker and, you know. Nicholas Brothers. Nicholas Brothers, you know. Yeah, and I didn't realize that respect for them. in the Sky, I mean, this all-black film, he was totally... Yeah, it. yeah. Not the not so much the film, but the music, the the, the, musical. the musical itself. You know the, that the film was derived from. Right, right. And he put his own money in it. He wanted to do it, and he let them. You know, he was there to learn. Right. He wasn't saying, "Oh, now you must do this. Now you must do that." He was like, "Let let me see what you do. What are you doing? What what do you think?" You know, and he gave Dunham a lot of a lot of free reign. Yeah, but even still. His favorite dancer of all time was Fred Astaire, who you remind us also performed in blackface. But the biggest revelation for me was that he did this post-synchronization. where Astaire. He, yeah. Not Ginger Rogers, who danced backwards in, in heels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but so tell us about that, what this post-synchronization Oh, you is. mean the way he would, he would yeah. The, Astaire was, I mean, like... Uh, but the stare was so involved in the, I mean, his taps weren't dubbed, but he was very 
involved in perfecting mm-hmm. the film version of whatever they were filming. So he would go back into the edited version. And make it perfect. And make it perfect. Like two, uh, what was the example I gave? I can't remember. It's like two, a 30 second of a second. You know, he, he could say, okay, no, we need to cut it right here a little bit sooner than you did, like a, t- some, a nanosecond, right. literally a nanosecond sooner. And I think Balanchine had, you know, he learned from that too. You know, he's looking at all these things and he was very exacting about music as well in certain places Mm -hmm. because the effect was only achieved there. Another quote, um, you said, in a way Balanchine was like a steer, a white man reinventing black dance in his own image. That's a lot. That's (laughs) a lot. Yeah. Um, And then you describe... Agon, am I saying it correctly? Agon, yep. Um, which premiered in 1957 as revolutionary in the, the work where Balanchine becomes Balanchine. What happened there that you think marked that moment when you really see it all come together? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a ballet that comes sort of midway in the life and midway in the book, and, and it, it, it sort of it takes both halves of the life and it's a centerpiece right in the middle. And it, it was probably his most breakthrough radical work, although there's some predecessors, certainly. Um, so why is it a big change? I mean, it's the origins, really, of what we think of as a, a sort of full-blown abstraction in dance. And it has other origins as well, but in this dance, Balanchine you know, strips the stage completely there's no sets. The costumes are leotards and tights. They're not anything. Right. That, I mean, that's a costume for sure, but there's nothing. It's a revealing of the body. That's right. what he wants to do. And there's no distractions from that. There's a light coming in from everywhere, just light. And so the body is just highlighted and lit and exposed. And the music is Stravinsky, and he's working directly with Stravinsky this time, right, in the studio. And they're having, from the very origins of the piece to the end, they're working together on it. And it's one of the most thrilling moments of his life. And it comes, and this is a kind of a theme in the book, that it comes at a a moment of great loss. I mean, this is something you've alluded to as well, you know, that, I mean, his wife had been stricken with polio. He had spent a year abroad, caring for her. It wasn't clear what was going to happen with the company, what was going to happen with him, how was it all going to go forward. This is Tanny Leclerc. This is Tanny Leclerc. And um, what a tragic story. Like, that one stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, and it's, I have it, you know, I put it in the same chapter because it's sort of the, the prequel in a way, you know, this terrible event and this this body that's fallen. Again, so many fallen bodies in his life. So many crippled and bodies that have been taken apart or not been able to function in the we ways that they would. We didn't even mention he had been ill as well, right? With he had TV. been ill as well. So he's seen this kind of thing over and over again in his life. And then here he is with, with Tanny, who he loves and who's a dancer who inspires him enormously and one of the great dancers of his company. And she's stricken down, but... No one knows what's going to happen. And then suddenly he comes back and he has this power creativity that just, Agon is the result. 
and it's, it's an extraordinary sort of propulsive work that has no story, no sets, no costumes, as I said, you know, no, it's music and it's dance. And it is stunning experience if you've seen it, you know, and people at the time were overwhelmed by right, it. Right, right. Um, you described the dancers as instruments of mathematical precision, of logic and calculation, not of emotion or feeling. There's no story. It's a dance about dance. It's a dance about, he even called it, a, you know, an IBM computer dance, <laughs> right? Because he was very interested in whatever was going on, you know, what's at the forefront, what's happening? Right. And so, the, you know, the sort of be, the early huge computers, right? These IBM computers that were part of the Cold War as well. So, you know, we, we've got this and now we've got this dance and it had that kind of like, it was almost like math. I mean, the counts were just difficult and... The dancers described it as you go on, even today they describe it that way, as you go on, you're on edge the whole time. You're I just was on edge just trying to keep it. up. Just reading it, I was on edge. <laughs> Good. Well, I was trying to create that. You did. You, know? <laughs> you, um, did. you did it. And I love this quote um, you said of Balanchine. We're like flowers. A flower doesn't tell you a story. It's in itself a beautiful thing. And that's what he was really trying to establish was that you don't need dances that act things out. I mean, this is where he was often called cold, right? There's no emotion. The dancers were often performed with sort of, their faces weren't, and they weren't smiling, they weren't selling, they weren't uh, performing. They were, it was a more internal experience. And so the, the idea is that dance has its own validity as an art form. It can communicate in and of itself like, right. a, like a flower, like something that is beautiful in its own and doesn't belong to words. Right. Doesn't belong to language and acting. So that was revolutionary. It was. Yeah. It sort of strips out the pantomime aspect. Yeah. The costumes, the pantomime, the sets, everything, right? Yeah. So icons appear over and over throughout the book. And so what was their significance in Balanchine's life and work and in the book. Yeah, I mean, this is something that Lincoln Kirstein, who worked with him a lot, often talked about as well, was the icons. And Balanchine, Balanchine had icons with him his whole life, you know, just in his home, by his bedside. He, he would buy them. He, would, he was a very a deeply religious man, uh, Russian Orthodox. And you know, the icon is an interesting thing because it's a flat surface, just the way Agon was a flat ballet. It didn't have the depth created by sets and costumes. It was a flat surface, just like an abstract expressionist painting, just like an icon. And the icon also has something called you know, reverse perspective, which is a very interesting sort of phenomenon that, that I think he used in his dances as well, where, you know, if you're looking at a painting and you're, you're looking at the surface of the painting and then you're looking into the painting because of perspective and Western um, painterly traditions, whereas with the icon, you're looking at the surface it's of flat. the painting and it's flipped. It's pushing out at you and pulling you in, which is what this kind of more internal... Um, dance style can do too because you're being pulled into the surface of the painting not through perspective but through 
this flat surface. So there's that. And then, you know, the icon also is something that's illumined. It has no source of light. It's illuminated from within. And it's also say. anonymous, right? We and don't know who anonymous. made it. Exactly. Right. And it tries to erase the sort of idea that there is a, there's an I, there's an author. There is an author that's, of course, understood. It's not a divine creation. It has the hand of man on it, or woman, mostly man. Um, but it's not a, you know, this is me and I'm expressing myself. It's we are talking about something greater than all of us. Right. And that's what he was after, really. So you just mentioned someone I was going to ask you about next, and that's Lincoln Kirsten, which is like a fascinating character in the book and in Balanchine's life. Can you just talk a little bit about him? Yeah, Lincoln's, a, as you say, he's like, uh, he's a huge figure in the book. Literally. And, and, yeah, exactly. I mean, I even remember when I was a dance student at the school, and he was a an older man, but still very, very active. And he used to come into the studio, and he's like, you know, 6'2", and this huge, bony, hulking body, and he would be bent over, and he would just come there. And I found him just absolutely fascinating. And as I was doing the research for the book, um, unlike Balanchine, he wrote everything down. And he has a vast archive, diaries, letters, correspondence, Paintings, so much stuff is but left behind. But he was obsessed with dance and, and with was, Balanchine, He right? saw himself as an American Diaghilev, so he wanted to really establish dance in America. Right. And Balanchine was his man. Right. And he stuck. Balanchine had so many people coming in and out of his life. But Kirstein, from 1933, when they first met, he was there like a rock. He did not leave. They weren't close, close friends, although they were close. Right. You know, it's a different kind of closeness. Yeah. It seemed like he didn't really feel that Balanchine needed him, but he was so instrumental in helping him build that company and that school. Yeah, I, fe I felt he was, for sure. I mean, he, and he had that sort of, you know, he was bipolar. He was a troubled and complicated person in a, and very uncomfortable even in his body and he was, he was just riveted by dance and by the human figure and I think he felt that the human figure was disappearing from art and he wanted it to stay. You know, he was going to make it live on the stage and they were going to do that together. And so he was both frustrated because Balanchine sort of didn't give him an artistic role that he might have imagined he would have taken, right. you know, in terms of design. Or, But he was always there, and he helped a lot, as you say, both I mean, emotionally... raising money, writing checks of his own. He knew yeah, everyone, exactly. right? He put his own money in a big way. He, he, he had been, you know, he was a Harvard guy, even though he was, he was Jewish from a, a sort of... Boston emigre family who, German immigrants, and had, his father had made good by becoming one of the co-founders of Filene's department store. So there was money in the family. And then there were these Harvard connections that was the, the New York world of the post-war period, and these connections mattered a lot. Yeah. So he had Rockefeller on the line at a moment's notice. And he saved the company 
more times. Many times, right? Many times. I mean, there were so many starts and failures, starts and failures, starts and bankruptcies, crises, near failures. You know, every year was another deficit, another problem, another half-filled house. It was not the, the sort of glorious New York City ballet for a very long time. We cannot end this conversation without talking about some of the juicy, juicy stuff (laughs) in this book. So we've touched on the fact he had four or five wives, but who's counting? The fifth was common law, right? No, the the, the second was common law. The the fifth was Tanakiel. Okay, so... And then he wanted to marry Suzette Farrell. He wanted to marry Suzanne Farrell. But she spurned him and married a fellow dancer, which caused a real break in their relationship for quite some time. So you don't see these women as victims. Uh, You make it very clear you don't see any of these women that he was decades older than, and they were dancers in his company and he pursued them. And you're right, they did not complain, not then, not later. They weren't looking for consistency or high moral character. They didn't expect the man to live up to his art. And you continue, the question didn't arrive in part because they, at least the ones who lasted, were ruthless too. Wow. So we're in this me too moment. Would he have survived this moment? You know, it's funny. I obviously thought about that quite a lot. (laughs) And I mean, I find the question difficult because it's sort of built on anachronism in a way because you, you can't, you know, would he have survived as he was then now? Absolutely not, right? That seems very clear, doesn't it? Wouldn't you say? I would think, yeah. Yeah. Would he have behaved the same way now if he had been living now? Who knows? We don't know that. The only way I knew to, to deal with this issue, which is, as you say, troubling in many ways, because there were power relationships for sure, and he had a really kind of crude and almost adolescent side. You know, it, was, yeah. it was just kind of, <laughs> you know, what is this? And the women did suffer. I mean, many of them did suffer, and they experienced, um, you know, they were so young. They were teenagers, many of them. Insecure, wanting his approval desperately, um, not always getting it, told to lose weight, told to, you know, with a young, developing body, obviously not a very healthy environment. He had a way to get paid, right? A way to get paid. You know, you must the, weigh the, before... This is Somebody gave this to me. It's, <laughs> it's in his hand. You must weigh before... Yeah, you, you must weigh before you get paid. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, and this is not unheard of in dance companies, no, for sure, no. even way back into the 19th century. But, yeah, big problem. And I... As, you said, as we were talking about in the beginning, I talked to so many of the women who had been in the situation with him, in the situation, and I was amazed that over and over again, you know, as a chorus, even the ones who had suffered, and, and I tried to push them on this, you know, so how do you feel about this even now? And there are some that are not happy, of, to be sure, but the vast majority would say, you know, 
it was still one of the greatest moments of my life, you know, this experience, because we were part of something bigger than us. And you, you can call it cultish, and it was in parts, but it was also something spiritual that was giving these women who were often, especially in the early years, kind of looking for some kind of a home or a place or a many father. Many were from or, broken homes, right? Many were from broken homes, Immigrants. especially in those early years. Mm -hmm. Immigrant families, more than you would think, were fatherless or the father had left. So there's, there's sort of all of that. And I, the only way I could arrive at a sort of modus vivendi almost was to say what they said and to use the book as a way of giving testimony for them. Even if they were internalizing a really toxic right. kind of paradigm, right? Where this man with all this power, the most powerful man in the dance world. And in some cases, you showed where the mothers are kind of pushing them. For to, sure. to be with him, right? For sure. There's Talk a lot of people about stage mothers. Talk <laughs> about like... stage mothers. Yeah. And they're pushing themselves, you know, to be with it. And as you say, you know, you could go, you know, sort of Stockholm Syndrome, visit people who have been... But I, I felt I had to listen to them as well. I couldn't... I didn't want to moralize. I wanted to present it almost in cold blood, you mm -hmm. know, just like on the page. This is what happened. This is what they say. This is the evidence we have. And people now and later can make of it what they will. This is what happened. Right. No, as far you, as we you, can know. You leave it all there on the page. It's not like you shy away from it. No. Yeah. But I, I, I struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did too. I mean, and, and as you know, I'm a, the mother of a dancer. So I was like, oh, I'm glad my daughter didn't go to SAP. <laughs> Yeah, and I struggled with it personally. Like, was I part of that? You know, and I had f friends, some of them are here tonight, you know, were we part of that? Was that? And we, we also thought we were feminists. And, and they did too, in some ways. I mean, it, so it was a, it's a difficult issue to sort of make sense of. And the only way I could do it was just to be the, the sort of, okay, I'm not going to, as you say, I'm not no. going to shy away from any of it. I'm going to, like, put it out there and mm -hmm. just be the historian. Yeah. There was also, um, it didn't come up earlier, he was fired from the Met in 1938 over some kind of scandal. What was happening there? You know, his dances, even early on, and we talked about it a little bit in the Russian context in the early years in, in, in St. Petersburg or Petrograd or Leningrad, whatever they were calling it at any particular moment, his dances were very erotic often. And they had, um, they were, yeah, it was explicit in some ways, quite daring for the time, as they say. And he was doing some dances like that at the Met. And he was also doing things that were very, just, it wasn't the usual opera ballet. And they wanted an opera ballet. And he, you know, for example, once he, he mounted... Um, you know, he had, in Orpheus, he had the dancers on the stage and the singers in the pit. It didn't go over so well. And then the stuff that was going on on stage, you know, there was barbed wire and all this crazy stuff from Chelichev, and it just wasn't the Met at that time. And so there was conflict, and the board wanted him to change things, and he refused. And um, Eddie Warburg, to his credit, stood up for him. He threw in the money himself and said, okay, we're going to do this anyway. And 
you know. You know, I tried to tell the story of the dances, the story, I tried to describe the dances in both, uh, by, by keeping track of both the external, what they look like on that flat surface or on whatever surface you're seeing as you watch, and the, f the inside, the experience of the dancer, him or herself. And because I'd done it, I could try to transpose my own sort of body and mind into what that might have felt like. Obviously, it's just me doing that. But part of what I'm trying to do when I do that is to treat dance as a history of ideas. So that when you actually try to imagine what it feels like, it can be a description, but it can also be you can grasp sometimes, you know, those ideas of either isolation or community or individual or some of the things that are, are be behind the dance, as it were. But you had that insider perspective, right? I, I do have that, you know, I, because I had danced, it right. was really but helpful. But you were able to describe it in a, in a way that was so, like, you took us into the studio. We actually understood what it was that was going on, the pain, the joy, all of it. It was, it was very uh, evocative. Thank you to the Leanne Levy Center. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Shelby White. Thank you, Kai. And thank you, thank you all, and thank you, Pamela. Thank you. <laughs>